But in this series, we're gonna talk about how do you love those unlovable people in your life, those difficult people, those, those high maintenance people, even those people that would fall into the category of being an enemy. How do you love those people? By the way, does anyone come to mind? Uh, if you can't think of anybody, let me help you identify them. This is the person that when their number shows up on your phone, you don't answer it. This is the person, if you get invited to a party and you find out they also were invited to the party, you don't go. Or when you finally do get up the nerve to spend some time with this person, the whole time you're with with them, you feel like they are just absolutely sucking the life out of you. You know what I'm talking about? Or maybe when you're around this person, you, you feel no freedom. You feel like you're walking on eggshells. You have to watch every word that you say, right? And maybe you hate the way you feel. Maybe you actually feel guilty over the way you feel. But no matter how hard you try, no no matter how many attitude checks you have, you just can't change the way you feel about this person. Now this morning, let me just ask you, how many of you would be honest enough to raise your hand and say, that sounds like somebody in my life. That fits somebody's description in my life. Just raise your hand and say, you have somebody in your life like that, okay? How many of you would raise your hand and say, I am that person? Say, not, 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 not not as many. I really do believe that one of the characteristics of a Christian, one of the characteristics of a follower of Jesus Christ is that we can learn to love people that we would never naturally love on our own. And we see how Jesus modeled this while he was on earth. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes and adulteresses and and he hung out with people who had drug issues and alcohol issues. Even with his dying breath, what did Jesus do? He invited a thief to spend eternity with him. And then after Jesus ascended back to heaven, if you read the rest of the New Testament, you see that his followers took this very, very seriously. In fact, listen to what Paul wrote to a small church in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. He says here, and he's referring to this church, here in Colossae, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian. There's no Scythian. There's no slave or free. Christ is all and is in all. Now, what's that all about? Well, To really understand what Paul is talking about, I have to give you a little bit of background. Let's take the Jew, for example. You have to understand that in the mind of the first century Jew, if you weren't Jewish, you were unclean. If you weren't Jewish, you were considered a pagan, and so a Jew wouldn't eat with you. A Jew wouldn't speak you. They would never touch you. But now Paul says in this church in Colossae, the Jew and the Greek, they're sitting down together, they're singing together, they're worshiping together, they're learning God's word together, they're serving side by side. And then Paul also refers to those who were slaves and those who were free. And that probably means nothing unless you understand that in the first century, slaves weren't even thought of as human human beings. Aristotle once referred to slaves as living tools with no rights. They had no right to be married. They had no right to have a family. In fact, a slave owner could beat, even kill a slave. There would be no repercussion for that slave owner whatsoever. And historians tell us that maybe a third of Colossae was made up of slaves. But Paul says now we have these slaves and those who are free, they're sitting next to each other in this church. And then there were the barbarians. And I gotta say, the Greeks had as much contempt for the barbarians as the Jews had for the Greeks. In fact, the word barbarian actually comes from the Greeks. Whenever the Greeks, they were so snotty, they were so condescending that whenever they heard someone speaking a language other than Greek, they would go, bar, 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 bar. You know, guys, kind of like when our wife talked to us and we go, yada, 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 yada. No, not real. Don't do that. That's not wise. You won't live to tell anybody about it, right? But every time they heard somebody speaking a language, they would just say, bar, 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 bar. And that's where the term barbarian came from. But the Scythians... They were a particularly interesting group of barbarians. They were thought of as the lowest of the low. To behave like a Scythian, 
was actually a metaphor in the first century for somebody who was a dirtbag, okay? These were the bad guys. These were your enemies. By the way, we don't call them Scythians in our day. See, if there are people who really get under our skin, we don't call them Scythians. You know what we call them? Those people, don't we? Who are the those people in your life? You ever thought about, for some of you, it's the Democrats. Oh, those people. For some of you, it's the Republicans, right? For some of you, it's the rich. I was talking to somebody this week. He said, I just can't stand rich people. For some, it's the poor. For some, it's those who are black. For others, it's those who are white. For some, it's those who are brown. For some, it's those who are yellow. For some, it's the educated. For some, it's the uneducated. For some, it's illegal immigrants. They're the enemy. For some of you, all of a sudden, it's all Muslims. They're the enemy. How about the... uh, LGBT community. All of a sudden, are they your enemy? Those people? I was having dinner with my mom this week. She's 85 years old, so give her a little bit of a break. But she said, what are you speaking on this week? And I said, "Uh, love your enemies. And she said, oh. I said, mom, do you have any enemies? She said, no. Well, I know my mom. I said, how about Hillary? She said, does she count? See? See? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh they count? Right? Right. In Colossae, these Scythians and barbarians, they're sitting next to the cultured and the sophisticated. The uneducated are sitting next to the educated. The powerful are sitting next to the powerless. The wealthy are sitting next to the poor. There's this incredible unity and love and acceptance. Now, here's the question. We can't imagine that. I mean, when I was in Israel, I was talking to our guide. He's Jewish, and I, he's 34 years old. And I said, how can we be in the city of Jerusalem? And we have Jews, we have Muslims, Muslims we have Palestinians. And I know what you read on the news, but I'm telling you what, I felt a lot safer there than I do here in the great old United States of America. And I said, how is it possible? And he's, this is what he said. He said, Mike, at the end of the day, most of us, we all want the same thing. We want our kids to go to school and grow up. We want to have a future. We want to be able to make a living. He says, we're never going to marry each other, but we can get along. We can work side by side. Our kids can go to school together. We, can, you know, we hear that, but how is it possible that these lifelong enemies in Colossae could now sit and worship and sing and be involved in one another's life? How is it possible? Well, that's what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks in this series. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. Matthew chapter 5, it's the Sermon on the Mount. This is where, this is where we actually find Jesus' agenda for our relationships. And Jesus begins in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, saying this, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. By the way, there's nowhere in the Old Testament where the Jews were instructed by God to hate their enemies. The Jews had just decided that it was on their own, that God was okay with them hating their enemies. And they came to the conclusion because they just assumed that in God's heart, there was a list of people that he hated, anybody who wasn't Jew. And there was a list of people that he loved, everybody that was Jews. And so, you know, the Jews just assumed since God thought that way, it was okay for them to think that way also. So understand when Jesus begins teaching in Matthew chapter 5, he's trying to clear up the confusion. He says, you've heard all of your life that it's okay for you to hate your enemies. 
In the Old Testament, you were, you know, your ancestors heard that it was okay to hate the Philistines. The Philistines, they were the dreaded enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. He says, you've been taught your whole life that it's, that it's okay to hate the Romans who are ruling over you right now. But Jesus says, I want you to know there's a new sheriff in town. And I am bringing a whole new standard. I want you to love your enemies. And when Jesus says love here, he uses that Greek word that we throw around a lot. It's the, it's the word agape. It's this idea of seeking the highest good of the other person. It's not an emotional love. It's, it, it's, it's a love that begins in the mind. It's a decision. It's something that you decide. It's something that you choose to do. In other words, I decide to seek the highest good for that person. I'm going to make the decision that even though they're my enemy, I'm going to put their needs above my needs. So Jesus wasn't saying that you have to feel good about your enemy. He wasn't saying that you even have to feel warm and fuzzy over your enemy. He was saying, I want you to make the decision that you're going to treat your enemies the way you treat your friends. In fact, I want you to love the very people who make your life miserable. <laughs> and when we hear that, we just naturally assume that Jesus must have some practical reason for asking us to do something as ridiculous as love our enemies, right? Maybe it's, hey, if you love your enemies, your life will be better, or you'll live longer, or you'll be happier. Or if you love your enemies, maybe Jesus, I'll make you richer. See, that would get our attention. But I can't find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus encouraged these kinds of relationships, loving our enemy as a means to our end that's somehow going to benefit us. In fact, Jesus gives us the reason to love this way, beginning in verse 44. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That, in other words, here's the reason, here's the purpose, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It literally means so that you will be like children of your Father in heaven. It's not so that we'll somehow benefit in this life. It's not even so that our relationships will be passed up. He says, I want you to love this way because in doing so, you will be like your father who is in heaven. Because understand, that's how he loves us. And then Jesus gives us an illustration, verse 45. He, referring to God, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And that's true, it rained yesterday, right? Guess what, when it rained in my yard, it rained in my neighbor's yard, whose dog does their business in my yard. What's up with that, right? When it rains in my yard, it rains in my neighbor's yard, as far as I can tell, has no interest in a relationship with God whatsoever. And so Jesus says, have you noticed, have you noticed that your heavenly father treats people who don't even like him the same way that he treats the people who do like him? Have you noticed that he allows the sun to shine on people who don't even think that he exists? And so Jesus says, since your heavenly father operates that way, since that's the way he treats people, I want you to treat people the same way. I want him to be your example. And then he continues in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Now, we've talked about tax collectors before. They were the real losers of the first century. These were Jewish citizens who were collecting taxes from the Jews for the Romans. From the perspective of a Jew, they worked for the man. They were despised by the Jews. They were considered to be traitors. And so Jesus, see, he knows his audience. He, he, he knows who he's talking to. And he says, hey, if you're only nice to the people who are nice to you, hello, you are no better than the tax collectors. 
And I'm sure his audience were going, ooh, ouch, wow, that's going to that's leave a mark, right? But Jesus' point was this. Anybody, even tax collectors, even drug dealers, even gang members, even sexual deviants, they can be nice to the people that are nice to them. That's no big thing. That's no big deal. Jesus said, that doesn't make you any better than anybody else. That doesn't set you apart. Everybody does that. Verse 47, and if you greet, and the word greet means hold in honor or hold in high esteem. If you hold in high esteem, only your own people. In other words, the people that you allow into your circle, right? What are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Now, what is Jesus' point? What is he getting at here? Well, this is what it is. What he's saying is, as my followers, and he's speaking to that crowd, and I think he was saying, if you're going to follow me, I'm going to expect more out of you than I do everybody else. In other words, for Christians, for followers of Jesus Christ, there is a different standard. For those of us who would identify ourselves as Christians, there is a higher standing. There's more to our relationships. There's more to how we treat people than the average person. You see, the average person can get by simply treating people the way they want to be treated. The average person can get by patching up relationships they feel that will benefit them if they can actually patch up the relationship. The average person in the world can get by only being nice to the people that they want to be nice to. But understand, for those of us who identify ourselves as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, the standard is higher. And Jesus says the standard is this. We have even been called to love the person who makes our life miserable. And then he gives us the kicker in verse 48. Be perfect. Be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we hear that in our immediate response is, well, wait a second. There's no way I can be perfect the way God is perfect. But let me explain what this verse means. The word perfect there means complete. It means whole. It means undivided. Have a heart like God's that's complete, that's whole, that's undivided. In other words, God doesn't have a heart that has a side of people that he loves and a side of people that he hates. He has a heart that is complete and whole and undivided. This is what this is saying. This is what Jesus is saying. Listen to me. He's saying, as a Christian, the closest you will ever get to perfection in this life, the most spiritual you will ever be in this life is when we can treat our enemies with kindness and respect and love. It's when our heart is whole. It's when it's undivided. That's when it's perfect like the Father's. In other words, according to Jesus, you can never be more spiritual. You will never be more like God than when you get to the place and you can love your enemy. That's it. Now, that makes us rethink some things, doesn't it? It has nothing to do with the amount of Bible knowledge you have. It has nothing to do with the number of deep and profound books that you have read or the Bible studies you attend or how much of the Bible you can quote. It is about your ability to love. In other words, when it comes to our spirituality, the best it can ever get in this life is when you and I choose to love our enemies. That's as good as it's gonna get. So Jesus comes along and he says, listen, if you want to be like your father in heaven, very simple, do what he does. 
So this, this is what I want you to walk out of here understanding this week. This is, this is the foundation of everything we're gonna talk about over the next few weeks. As Christians, as God's representatives on this earth, as his hands, his feet, his voice, understand he has a different agenda for us than he has for everybody else. Now, here's the good news if you're, news if you're not a Christian. You're off the hook. You can hate all you want to. You can drink all the haterade you want to. But Jesus says, if you're a Christian, different agenda. If you're a Christian, I'm gonna hold you to a different standard. And let me just say this. We are the biggest hypocrites in the world. If we think that we can share the message of God's unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness, and yet in our personal relationships, we are conditional in our love and forgiveness. I'm telling you, we are the biggest phonies in the world, and this is why there is such a, is such a breakdown between Christians and the world. This is why they see us as just negative. I, I've, never, I've gotten to the point where I don't even want to be called an evangelical anymore because it's, it's connected to political parties. I'm so sick of all that. We've become the target, and I'll tell you why. We are the biggest phonies in the world if we go around telling people you ought to be a Christian, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how big you've blown it, God loves you, and when Jesus died for your sin, he died for all your sin, your past sin, your present sin, your future sin, you are forgiven. See, we love to tell people that message. But we are the biggest hypocrites, we are the biggest phonies in the world if we share that message. But then we aren't willing to dispense that same unconditional love and grace and forgiveness to the people around us. So, uh, Let's get specific. Who's the person in your life you have the most difficult time getting along with? Who is that person who's always on your case? Who's the person you're pretty sure they have an agenda to ruin you? Is it your fiance who cheated on you, your spouse who deserted you, your business partner who ripped you off, a relative that maybe abused you. You got, their, you got their face right here, got that mental image, right? Some of you, you see me, because I talk to you about your money, right? Whoever it is, get it right there, get their face right there. Jesus says, okay, you see them? That's your target. And I love that person. <sighs> because you're gonna be the instrument through which I wanna communicate my unconditional love and grace. It's not that, so that you'll get along better with people. It's, it's not so that your life will be easier. It's simply because, hey, that's the mission that God has given us as Christians. So Jesus, he gathered on the hillside that day and he said, in a culture that was dominated by Rome, he said to a bunch of Jews in a culture where they were taxed to death, in a culture where they were beat down every day. In that culture, Jesus said, this is where I'm gonna take you if you choose to follow me. I want you to love your enemies. Now here's the question. What would happen in your marriage, you know, 
What would happen with your prodigal son or daughter? What would happen with your parent, your friend, your roommate, your coworker? What would happen if you just consciously said, you know, my role in their life is not to convince them of anything. My role in their life isn't to manipulate them into doing what I think they should do. My role in their life isn't to control them. My role is to simply love them and leave the convincing and the manipulating and the controlling up to God. What would happen in that relationship? One time I was reading an article about Billy Graham and they were actually interviewing his wife, Ruth. And they asked her what role she had played in Billy Graham becoming this man that he had become. And her response is one of the best responses I've ever heard in my life. This is what she said. She said, it's my job to love Billy. It's God's job to make him good. What would happen if that became the way we approached all of our relationships? And right now, some of you are thinking of all the reasons you can't love this way. You're thinking, Mike, I can't love like that because you don't know this person. They don't deserve it. In fact, Mike, if you would just free up your schedule this week, I'll be glad to come in and talk to you. And I will give you my story, my circumstance, all the betrayal, all the embarrassment. And you will see that I am the one exception in the history of mankind to this rule. In fact, God, if he hears my story, he will say, you sit right over here. You're the exception. You don't have to love that person, right? You're already coming up with that reason. Or some of you are thinking, I can't love that way because the situation is just too emotionally charged. Too much hurt, too much pain, too much history, too much abuse. Or some of you are thinking, you know, Mike, I, I would love to, but I can't love that way. And this is a big one for a lot of us. I feel like if I love them this way, I would be letting them get away with what they did. Mike, if I love them unconditionally this way, it's like I'm letting them off the hook, you know? It's like, it's like I'm saying, it's okay that you betrayed me. It's okay that you abused me. It's okay you've treated me the way you've treated me. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna love you. I'm just gonna love you. Now, I struggle with this. Somebody came up to me last night and said, okay, you talked about loving your enemies. You gonna pull for Carolina? And I'm like, does it include that? You know, I'm just. So I got up about four o'clock this morning. I recorded the game last night and I thought I would watch it. And I'm watching the game and I'm like, man, they, yeah, I guess, yeah. So I'm thinking, I'm trying to convince myself. You ever talk yourself into something? Well, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if they won the national championship because at least it would stay here in the triangle, Duke. And, and. But then I'm like, you know what? Everybody knows they're a dirty program and it would be like they're getting away with it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right? But I figured it out. And I want you to know, I am pulling for North Carolina to win tomorrow night. Right? And then I'm hoping on Tuesday the NCAA comes in <laughs> and takes it away. I want them just to taste it and then lose it. I'm like, everybody wins. Aren't you glad I'm not God? I'm telling you what, it'd be a mess, wouldn't it? Right? But don't you feel like that? If I love them, if I, if I just forgive them, I'm letting them get away with it. Or maybe this, Mike, I can't love like that. They would just run all over me. They'd take advantage of that kind of love and it would be a doormat. Well, this is what's interesting. God could have used every one of these excuses on us. When he thought about sending the, his, his son to this earth, you know what he could have said? They don't deserve this. 
<laughs> Look at them. They're sinful, rotten people. He could have said, the idea of my son dying on a cross for their sin, it is just too emotionally charged. I can't do that. He could have said, you know what, if I save those people, if I extend grace to them, it's like I'm letting them get away with their bad behavior. And probably the one that's most convicting to me, he could have said, if I save those people, they're just going to run all over me. They're just going to take advantage of me. So understand, before you go there in your relationships, you need to understand that every time you and I sin as Christians, we're basically saying, God, thank you for your son. Thank you for the fact that he died on the cross. Thank you for the free gift of salvation. Now I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, and I'm still going to go to heaven when I die. In other words, every time we sin, we throw God's goodness and grace up in his face. Do you know what he says? He says, you know what? I'm going to love my enemies. And I'm going to treat as friends those who are unfriendly to me. Because that's what I'm like. Now, let me just give you a heads up. If you're really serious about following Jesus, he is going to lead you to love your enemies. Now, you don't have to go there. You can choose not to go there. But you need to understand, that is where he is going to lead you. But let me tell you what will happen if you'll let him lead you. He'll lead you over the hurdle of what they do and don't deserve. He will lead you around the barrier of all the emotion that's attached to the situation. He will lead you over the mountain of the fear that you're going to be taken advantage of. And he will lead you right through the wall of what you think that they're going to get away with. He'll deal with all that. But I'm going to warn you, if you're interested in handling relationships the way God wants you to handle your relationships, he's going to lead you to love your enemies. Now, <laughs> before you decide you're never coming back to this church again, okay? Okay. Um, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be married to someone who refused to convince and manipulate and control and instead they just loved you? Sought your highest good. Put your needs above their needs. Well, that's different, isn't it? I mean, see, we don't want to live this way, right? But we would love to be married to someone like that. By the way, I am married to someone like that. I wish Laura could be married to someone like that, but I'm working on it, I'm working on it, right? I'm working on it. Wouldn't it be great to have a parent that instead of trying to convince and manipulate and control you, they just loved you? Wouldn't it be great to have kids like that? Wouldn't it be great to have friends like that? See, when you turn this around, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. And that's where God wants to take us in this series. But let me just leave you with this one last thought. What would happen in our community if we all began to live and love this way? See, it's one thing for us to say we love people where they are. But it's another thing to really love people where they are. Father, thank you for a chance to be reminded of a simple truth this weekend. 
And I think it's one of those that we've heard our whole lives, and it's like, oh, that's so sweet. That's such a sweet concept. But yet, you made it very, very clear. That's the heart of the Father. And if we're going to reflect the heart of the Father, we have to come to terms with this. So, Father, I would just challenge all of us, starting with me, as we see those faces in our lives, those faces in our minds of people that somehow have become the enemy, that we could now see them as the goal of a person to love. Father, I wonder if it would not do us so much good just to, just to go out of here this week and intentionally, intentionally attempt to engage people that we see as our enemy and just see where that takes us. We love you. We love you for setting the example. Nowhere in this message did we use the word easy. But we have a lot to learn. And we look forward to you teaching us over the next few weeks. In your holy name we pray, amen. Thank you.